I'm glad that you're here today, and it's a blessing to have some folks here who haven't been able to be here for a while, and some folks who are visiting with us today, and we're just uh, glad to be able to share life together. If you're a believer in Christ, then we're going to spend eternity together, so it's nice to know you now. Uh, and take your Bibles, if you have it, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And uh, the title of the message is, For the Greater Good of the Gospel. On July 12th, um, we looked at chapter 8, went a little bit out of order, that's okay, uh, it was pertinent, but, but we ended chapter 8 uh, in verses 12 and 13, and I'm going to read those uh, as a foundation, get us rolling today. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. We need to remember that when we sin against the body of Christ, we sin against Christ. We, we Sin is serious business, and when we sin against other believers, it's big to the Lord because he calls it sinning against him. He even uh, told Paul that on the road to Damascus, said, you're sinning against me, you're persecuting me. So Christ takes it personally when you sin against somebody else. And by the way, kids, that includes the way you treat your siblings. Christ takes it personally if you treat other believers badly. Actually, I think he takes it personally if you treat anybody badly. All right, look at verse 13. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8.13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so he's saying there that you have a responsibility to do what is best for others. Uh, we live in a country that was founded on individualism. Uh, we live in the Southwest, if you live here, some of you are just visiting, but if you live here, the Southwestern part of the United States is even more focused on individual rights and liberties than, say, the Northeast is. And so we live in a culture, in a climate, where people focus on what's in it for me. And that's why politicians, they, ad, they advertise what's good for you if you vote for them. You know, if you advertise something and it's a lie and you're trying to sell a car, then it's called fraud and you can face criminal charges for it. But if a politician lies, then he, all he does is get elected. It's a strange culture we live in. Uh, but, but listen, Paul was committed to the greater good of the gospel, even when it meant he had to sacrifice. Now, this is going to show up a couple times this morning. I want you to really have this resonate in your heart. And let's look in chapter 9. Paul says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, Paul started the church in Corinth. He was the founding pastor. He was the evangelist who got it going. He was the missionary who came in and planted the church. That was Paul's role there. And Paul said to the people in Corinth, of anybody, you should recognize my apostleship. And then in verse 3, he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Now, 
Why would Paul be writing this? Well, at some point, he received a letter from the people in Corinth, and they had a bunch of questions. So in in chapters 4 and later, he starts answering some of those questions and addressing those issues the people in Corinth had. And some of the people in Corinth were saying, well, Paul's not really an apostle. Well, Paul's not really an anointed of God, and, and you shouldn't listen to Paul. You should focus on Apollos or focus on the Hebrew teachings as the foundation of the church. And, and so Paul's now addressing these concerns and these issues, and he was answering their questions and their critiques. Now, let me just say something, okay? You guys listening? Hey, when you hear someone complaining about someone else, You need to do something about it. The right thing to do is take that person and go to the other person. We were picking on Ben and Joel the other day. No, it was Ben and Tim. So Tim's in the sound booth this morning. But but Ben and Tim. And what if... I heard Ben say something critical about Tim. Well, I should say, hey, Ben, let's go talk to Tim and let's work this out and try and resolve it. That's what we should do. You know what was happening in Corinth? People were gossiping, right? Ready? They were gossiping in the church. Who ever heard of such a thing, right? Okay, nobody should hear about it, right? But Paul's saying they're critiquing him and they're fussing at him. And some people started believing the critiques. Maybe you've heard the phrase, where there's smoke, there's fire. And so if there's enough criticism, people start to believe it. Actually, the news media has mastered this art. If you say it enough, people start believing it's true, even if it's not. Like, how many of you have ever heard of the theory of evolution, right? On the news, do they ever talk about it as a theory? They talk about it as fact. This is what happened, and and they do it over and over and over, and yet it's not true. The Bible says God created a fully mature world in one week. Could have done it instantly. He took a week, six days actually, created the entire universe, and it was fully mature. So light that would take uh, a million years to reach planet Earth was already here when God put it there in the sky. He just set it up and it was all fully functioning and working. Adam and Eve were fully functioning people day one. You and I, not so much, right? So Paul was committed to the greater good of the gospel and he's answering their critiques and their questions. And he's giving them a defense of what's going on in his own life. And so remember in chapter 8, we read Paul say, I will never eat meat if it causes a brother to stumble. Now look at verse 4. Do we have no right to eat and drink? He's still addressing this issue that they've struggled with. And he's saying, I had a right to do that. I chose not to for the greater good of the gospel. Look in verse 5. Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as also the other apostles or the brothers of the Lord and Cephas or Peter? They, They had a right to be. Paul did not have a wife, but he could have had a wife as long as she was a believer. So take your Bible, mark your spot here, and turn over to 1 Timothy 4, 
And, and if you can mark both spots, we'll come back to 1 Timothy in just a little bit. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul's saying at the beginning of this chapter, he's saying, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, the later days on planet Earth, which we are in the latter days, uh, some will give, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So Paul's saying, listen, in the church, you're not supposed to forbid people from being married. Are there churches that do that? Yes. There are churches that have people who serve in certain ministry roles and they forbid them to be married. The Bible says you shouldn't do that. Are there churches that teach there's certain days of the week or times of the year you should avoid certain foods or only eat this food? Yes. But Paul's saying that's not what they're supposed to do. So why do they do that? I don't know, but they're not following God's word. And that's why we're not part of that church. So he's saying we have the right to eat what we want. We have the right to be married. He chose not to. And last week we looked at there. It can be a blessing to be single. It can be a blessing to be married. And Paul uh, spoke about both parts of that issue. But now uh, in, in verse number six, he, he's uh, talking about relying on the salary. So Paul did not get paid for any of the work that he did in Corinth. Look at how he describes it. Verse 6. Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? And by the way, th this looks weird. Verse 4 about eating and drinking. Verse 5 about having a wife. Verse 6 about getting paid. You say, where's the connectedness here? Paul's answering their questions and addressing them. That's why he's not just teaching a class. He's correcting issues in their church. So he says, are Barnabas and I the only ones who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense. Uh, our country pays for the military. Admittedly, they don't pay them well, but they pay them. And there are some benefits that you get for having served in the military uh, and, and some of those benefits last for your whole life, and some of them last for a year or two. Uh, but when we, as a country, we pay taxes, those taxes pay the military. Paul said nobody goes to war on their own. The soldiers are paid by who they're representing. Then he says in verse uh, the latter part of verse 7, Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? He's saying, if you're working on a farm, you get the benefits of the farm. In fact, if any of you have ever worked on a farm, how many of you have ever worked on a farm? Okay. I didn't work on a farm, but my grandpa had a farm, and my dad grew up on a farm, a dairy farm. And you work hard on a farm, but you also eat really well on a farm. There's always lots of fresh food and vegetables and meat and all right, so he's saying, that's just the normal thing. If you have somebody working on your farm, you feed them lunch. You feed them dinner. Um, then he says, 
uh, in verse 8, do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? He's saying, is this just the words of Paul, or is it anchored in the Old Testament Scripture? And he says, it is anchored in the Scripture. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. While the ox is working on the grain and it wants a snack, uh, the way they would separate grain in that day, they would have an ox tied on a bar and it would pivot around and the ox would just trample, trample, trample. And then once it got nice and broken up, uh, one ox or multiple oxen, and then they would throw it up in the air and the wind would blow the chaff away and they'd have the wheat there at the bottom. But if the ox ate a little while he was going, they, they did that just fine. And Paul's saying, now he says, is, it, is God concerned about the ox? Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it in verse 10, does he say it altogether for our sakes? And then he answers the question, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope. He who threshes in hope should partake of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more as the founder of the church? Nevertheless, we have not used this right. Paul said, I had a right to expect to be paid, but I did not do that. But he said, I endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. And he's going to go on. He's going to write about how when, when you're serving the Lord in that way, if you get paid from the people you're trying to reach with the gospel, it can actually hinder the gospel. I'll explain that in just a minute. But for now, turn to 1 Timothy again, chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here Paul uses a word called elders. Now some churches have elders, they use that title. Um, in our church we have pastors and deacons, both terms used in the scripture. And the pastor is the elder and the bishop of the local assembly. And so in the Bible, elders were presented as teaching pastors in the church who were also involved in overseeing the ministry. So um, uh, Paul used it to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders or pastors who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages." So we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians, but I want to talk about this just for a moment. How does a church decide to pay a pastor, and how much should they pay a pastor? Well, according to what Paul said, they should give them double honor. That actually means double pay. Um, so how do you calculate double pay? Well, I think every year you should double your pastor's salary. Uh, <laughs> All right, you know what my dad said? My dad said, now I don't know any church that's done this, and we certainly haven't, but my dad said, you should do a survey in town of all the salaries of the people with management level positions overseeing a group of people the size of your church and figure out what their salary is and then double that, and that should be what you pay the pastor. Now, our church has done well to provide for our needs as they could. 
The only time I've ever talked to the leadership team about how much I got paid was to either have them pause on a raise they wanted to give me or one point because the church was struggling a little financially that year, we actually took a pay cut. And, and that was our choice. Kathy and I prayed about it, felt God leading us to do it, and we did it. The church didn't come in and say, Pastor, you know, we're not going to cut any of our missionaries, but we're going to cut your salary. But listen, listen, it's okay for a pastor to be paid. A church should be generous toward a pastor. I'm not saying that as a pastor. I'm saying that as a student of God's word. That's what God's word said. So why wouldn't Paul take a salary from the church in Corinth? Well, it was quite simple, actually. He went there as a missionary planting the church. Now, Kathy and I have had the opportunity to minister in Cuba. I have in Cuba and in Mexico. And when we've gone in and we've done uh, in Cuba, uh, one service we were in, we had a phenomenal outpouring of people getting saved. Uh, I think well, like 75 people in one service. It was amazing how the people responded. And in fact, I even told the translator, ask them to go back and sit down. I don't think they understood what I said. And I went through the, the plan of salvation, everything again. And then I asked him to come forward and I turned to the translator and I said, I, I don't think they understand. And he said, what's the matter, pastor? Don't you trust the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I, I had just never personally seen anything like that. I'd experienced it when somebody else was preaching, but never got through me. But you know, those 75 people, if we had asked them to give us a special offering, you know, they would have done it. They were, they were energized. They were committed. But you know why we didn't want to do that? What do you think why we didn't want to do that? We didn't want them to think giving money to us helped them get saved. We wanted them to, re to understand salvation is about receiving a gift of God through Jesus Christ. It's not about what you give, it's about who you receive as your Savior. That's where salvation comes in. Now, after they'd grown a while and matured a while, then their pastor could teach them to start giving to support missions. But that was not our job, our role. We did not want to hinder the gospel. And that's what Paul did not want to do. He did not want to hinder the gospel because it would hinder the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, look down in verse 18. Paul said, when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. He never wanted people to think they could pay as part of their salvation. He wanted to present the gospel as a free gift, the gift of what Christ paid for and nobody else could. So, even as a church, we support missionaries who go in and plant churches, and we, we support them even in Cuba. Now, we have some missionaries that are supported by our church, and they go in and they work, and then once the people mature and Christ, then they challenge the people to give. But if you say, here's the gospel, now give your money, you could get those two confused, and we know some churches that do that. And that's not God's way. And so Paul did not want to do it that way. You see, Paul chose to serve others, not be served by them. And Paul wanted to exalt only Jesus Christ. 
Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. He, he was committed to exalting Christ and serving people. Some years ago, I was working on church staff in Texas, <laughs> some years ago, like 30. And while I was on uh, that church staff, we were going to have an evangelist come in. And, uh, okay, <laughs> 35 years ago, uh, we were going to have this evangelist come into the church. And, and so he gave us this list of things that he required before he would commit to coming to the church. And one of them was a really large dollar amount that the church would have to commit to pay him to come in. And then as a church, we had talked about it, and I was part of the pastoral staff, but I was like here. There were nine people on pastoral staff, and I was number nine. And, and the senior pastor was really gung-ho on this guy, thought it was great. And a couple of the other pastors, and I, we talked about some concerns that we had and, and some issues that we uh, kind of struggled with. But the senior pastor was gung-ho, this is going to be great, this guy's going to help reach our community for Christ. And then a week later, the senior pastor announced in our staff meeting that it wasn't going to happen because we couldn't guarantee enough money to the evangelist, so he canceled us. I don't see Paul ever doing that. Paul worked. He sacrificed. He, um, he labored. He did not want the people who needed to be saved to be hindered by money. So he worked hard to make that happen. Now, I, I personally am very grateful here in this church. The church has supported us, and I have not had to work a second job. I pastored in another community another time, and, and for years there I had to also work landscaping. And, uh, you know, some days I'd carry 300-pound trees, one in each hand. No, um, <laughs> I always had another person help me carry the 300-pound trees. But, but, you know, we'd carry it, and we'd plant, and I ran a jackhammer, and I did all kinds of, of work. And it's a blessing as a pastor to be able to just focus on the ministry and not also have to do another job. It's a blessing. And it's a blessing in our lives that God has provided that here. Uh, in fact, here one year, uh, Norm Shiley was chairman of the deacons. Some of you remember Norm. And we had a meeting, and he was talking about increasing the pastor's salary. And so Norm got up, and he said, Well, folks, it's time to feed the ox, <laughs> referring to the scripture here. <laughs> and, but, but, you know, we knew a, a church that had a deacon who he didn't want to pay their pastor well. He would loan his van anytime the pastor needed it, but wouldn't pay the pastor enough to buy his own van to take care of his own family. Uh, people have weird ideas. It is not wrong for a church to support a pastor well. It is wrong for a pastor to want to become rich at the expense of the people in the church. And it happens both ways. Sometimes churches take advantage of the pastor. Sometimes pastors take advantage of the church. And that should never happen in the Lord's church. We're in partnership together. And so 
Uh, Paul then gives, gives a, a... Paul's going to explain something here, and it's grossly misabused in our culture. Okay, look in verse 20. Paul said, And to the Jews... I'll go back to verse 19. Though I am free from all men, I made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law as under the law that I might win those who were under the law. To those who are without law as in without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who were without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be, partake, might be, may be partaker of it with you. All right, so in, in our contemporary understanding, it's that you have to be like the people of the world in order to reach them. The distorted understanding that the people of this world have to completely identify with you before you can identif- uh, help them trust Christ. That's a distorted view of what Paul's teaching here. And so you get people who say things like, well, only a Christian punk rocker can reach a secular punk rocker for Christ. And it takes a dancer to reach another dancer. And you need a Christian medical doctor to try and be a witness to an unsaved medical doctor. And if you want to help abused women and children, you have to first make sure you get abused. That's not what Paul was teaching. That's not what he said. Paul was not trying to get people to connect with him. He was trying to help them identify with the gospel. And he was trying to make sure there was no obstacle in his life that would hinder people from moving toward the gospel. Paul willingly gave up some of his freedoms to avoid being an obstacle between people and Jesus. See, you don't have to get hooked on drugs and then go to rehab and, in order to try and reach people who are hooked on drugs and in rehab. What you need to do is show the love of Christ. You can be kind, you can be gracious, you can be accepting of them as they are, and then help and serve other people. You can, as we like to say here a lot, show God's love and share His truth. You can do that. And you can reach people for Christ. Paul didn't become a Gentile to reach Gentiles. He just made sure he was not offensive to the Gentiles. And he wanted to make sure that he never hindered the gospel or the work of the Holy Spirit. Because Paul was committed to the greater good of the gospel. Even when he had to sacrifice. Paul chose to serve others, not be served by them, and to exalt only Jesus. So, to help believers understand the difficulties of the Christian life, now, Paul used some illustrations in certain areas. Sometimes he talked about being a soldier and being an athlete to help us connect. How many of you have ever run a race? Anybody? I mean, even when you were a little kid, not a serious competitive race. How many of you were in the Olympics? I don't think any. 
Uh, <laughs> Joel was in his dream. Uh, listen, listen, I had a dream of being in the Olympics when I was a kid because I was a pretty fast runner for high school kids in America. And, and I even made All-American, but I was so far from Olympic caliber. Uh, you know, most of the All-Americans at the collegiate level don't get into the Olympics. But we, but we run races, little races, kid races. Hey, I'll race you to the mailbox. You know, kids do that. I grew up with brothers. We always raced each other in everything. Everything. Everything, I'm pretty sure. And not just running races. We had a challenge who could brush their teeth the fastest. Not the best. We never competed in that. But, but listen, to help believers understand, to help people understand the difficulties of life, Paul used common illustrations common things they could understand. And people knew about races because they were a big deal. And people knew about soldiers because they were everywhere. In America, most of the time, you don't see armed soldiers. But if you travel to other countries, what do you see? Armed soldiers all over the place. We have a more free society, and I'm very grateful. Having been an armed soldier, I'm grateful I don't have to live that way or have somebody standing out in my street looking that way. So he ends by challenging them to strive for a crown. So he says, do you not know that those who run in a race run all, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. What does that mean? Well, it means if you're seriously competitive at the Olympic level, is what he's describing here, then you, take, you watch what you eat, you watch what you wear, you watch how you walk. Uh, you don't do things that would hinder you. Uh, like an Olympic athlete training, say, for a hurdle event, he's not going to go out and get in a pickup basketball game with some guys he doesn't know. Why? Because he might get hurt. So you discipline every area of your life to really focus on the race. And so then he says, the verse 26, well, the end of verse uh, 25, they're doing this to obtain a perishable crown. They're working, they're laboring, they're struggling to get a perishable crown. It was just a wreath that would be placed on their head, and then it would deteriorate, and it would be gone. Even today, the metals they give will last a long time, but someday all the earth is going to melt with fervent heat, the scripture says. So even that won't last. But he says, we labor for an imperishable crown. We want to be faithful to Christ. We want a crown that will last through all eternity. We want to live in a way that will please the Lord. And then he says, therefore, verse 26, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So Paul's focus was not merely on the effectiveness of his ministry. He was focused on Christ's evaluation of his ministry. So what Paul looked at was not how much fruit do I have, but how faithful am I? He was not focused on, well, I need to hold myself back. He wanted to make sure his whole heart was in it. He was fully vested and committed to it. And he wanted to follow Christ. 
And he was afraid, as he mentions in verse 27, lest I would become disqualified. I used to run track and really be fairly competitive at, at, at track. And I loved watching track meets and Olympic track and field events. And I really enjoyed watching those races. And I still watch them when I can. And um, I remember watching one. I had to look up the year it happened. It was 1995. I'm not so obsessive that I remember the exact year. But I remember who was running and I remember how it went. Gwen Torrance was the American sprinter, phenom, uh, expected to win the 200 meter in that event. And uh, they took off on the 200 meter. You, you start on this end of the track and then you run up and around the corner and down the straightaway. And so she was, when she came off that corner, she had a slight lead. She was maybe one or two yards ahead of everybody. And then going down that straightaway, she just blew them away wasn't even close. She won by more than 10 yards over second place, which is a huge advantage in a 200-meter race. But the judges disqualified her because as she was going around that curve, four or five times she stepped on the line that separates the two lanes. Now, Stepping on that line at most gave her a six-inch advantage. But she was completely disqualified, even though she clearly was way better than anybody else. Because track and field has some simple rules. Don't step on the line. And she did. And she was disqualified. God has some rules for us, too. And maybe you're a faithful Sunday school teacher, but if you ignore God's rules, you could become disqualified. Maybe you've loved serving in Awana. Some of our folks really enjoy that. And you've loved that, and you want to do that. And if you don't follow within the lines, you could become disqualified. And Paul did not want that to happen. Paul lived his life with one goal, to bring honor to Jesus Christ by sharing and living out the gospel. That's what he wanted to do. In a physical race on earth, if there's a race, how many people get first place? One, unless it's an absolute dead heat tie. That happens sometimes. In the Olympic 50-meter swimming, they had a tie, exact tie to the hundredth of a second, or maybe even to the thousandth of a second. I ran a race once, 3.1 miles, and we had a photo-finished tie, my friend Fred and I, exactly tied at the end of that race. But most of the time, only one person wins. At the most, there's never been a three-way tie. There have been a tie between two people. But see, in the race of life, following the Lord, how many people can win the prize? Everybody can. Everybody can. Even if it's a kid who dies before they're 15 years old, they can win that prize because they were faithful to God while they lived on earth. I don't want to be morbid, but I preach funerals for kids as young as three. It does happen that kids die. 
So, so you want to be faithful to the Lord whatever age you are. And you know, you can be really faithful for 50, 60 years and then drop off the deep end. Years ago, I was visiting a guy here in town, lived over SunWest, and, and uh, we went to visit him. I don't remember how it came up, but another fellow in the church and I went over to visit with this guy and talk with him. And he said, you know what? He said, I was faithful to God for years. I taught Sunday school for 40 years. He said, now I told God I've done enough and I'm going to retire. And he said, now I golf on Sunday. Do you think the Lord was pleased with that choice? I don't think so. Especially not when you're retired and you could golf every day. Why are you out only on Sunday? But, but listen, we don't have to worry about that guy. The person you need to worry about is the one you see in the mirror. And you need to make that person, that man or that woman, that boy or that girl, you need to make sure that one is trying to follow God. Paul focused on the spiritual race. The physical race has only one prize. The spiritual race, everyone can earn that prize. And Paul focused on that and he disciplined his body like an athlete. He wanted to please Jesus. And remember, all of this chapter is rooted in verse 3 where he says, This is my defense. He's given a defense and answer to these questions. And so he willingly gave up some of his freedoms to further the gospel. And he willingly sacrificed and he sought to be faithful. And he became a servant to all. And he gave his all. His critics were self-seeking and self-indulgent. They tried to make Paul look bad so they could look good. But they failed. In the eyes of God, and then even after this, in the eyes of that church, Paul looked good, and those guys were exposed. So, on the only scale that counts, the scale in heaven, Paul was winning his race. How are you running? Maybe you can't run. I can't. How are you running spiritually? God's evaluating our lives. We answer to him. Paul was committed to the greater good of the gospel, even when that meant he had to sacrifice. And he chose to serve others, not be served by them. And his goal was to exalt Jesus, not himself. If Paul was a guest speaker, he wouldn't get up and say, I was talking with the president the other day. He wouldn't do that. He would get up and talk about Jesus. Hey, I, I think you should vote. I think you should vote your conscience. I think you should be informed and pray about it and vote. We have that right in this country, and I think it's good for you to do it. But on an eternal scale... Which candidate you vote for doesn't matter that much. But which person you exalt does. Exalt Jesus. On your Facebook page, all the other stuff you put online, don't be trash-talking politics. There's plenty of people out there that do that. You be exalting Jesus Christ. So how are you serving? How are you sacrificing 
How are you running? The truth is, we need to live for the greater good of the gospel. And that's what Paul did, and that's what we need to do. And Paul said that factored in on everything, whether he got paid or not, whether he ate stuff or not, whether he went certain places or not, it was all weighed in for the greater good of the gospel. So I know the gospel's made a big difference in your life. If you're here today and you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, the gospel's made a huge difference. You got saved. You're on your way to heaven instead of hell. You're a child of God instead of a child of Satan. You, you belong to the Lord. You belong in heaven, and he's building a place in heaven for you. And that's all true. But what difference is it making in your life tomorrow, Tuesday, next Friday? Are we living for the greater good of the gospel? Realizing that every time we speak, we could influence people for or against Christ? I used to struggle with my temper. I've gotten better at overcoming that struggle. But I remember in boot camp, having a non-believer tell me, Green, I don't think a Christian should act like that. And you know, that really, really hit home. But Paul said, what people think doesn't matter. What does the Lord think? So you need to expose your heart to God's word and conform your life to God's word and follow him. And Paul did that. And because of that, churches were started all over the place. Christianity spread like crazy because of the efforts of Paul. And you know what? God can use you to reach some people with the gospel if we really live it 